John chapter 5, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, because you always go up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick and blind and lame and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then went first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in and was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was Sabbath on that day. That should be followed by an ominous tone, kind of a dun-dun-dun. You wouldn't normally think that Sabbath would be followed by a tone like that, but indeed. This is an interesting story. This is the next the third sign, third of seven signs in John, seven miraculous signs that John calls out in his gospel. 39 or so different miracles that are specifically listed in the gospels, but there are only seven in John, and this is the third one. So when you only have seven, you know there's something significant and complete about that in a message that John, or at least the Spirit through John, is trying to get across. But I want you to note something here in your Bible. Questions are asked. There are some uncertainties. There are others who embrace him immediately, but it's, it's okay. It's the beginning of a ministry. You would expect this to happen. Chapters 5 through 7 now expose a dramatic shift in attitudes toward Jesus, and we'll see that this morning. From this point forward in the gospel, we will begin to hear overtly angry, hateful, even murderous hearts beating like a growing crescendo of threatening drums all the way to Calvary. From here on, it doesn't stop. And it all begins with a pool. A pool. I shared this years ago, true story, when I was doing youth ministry in Northern Virginia. We had a certain decorum there, propriety. We are on the, uh, right outside the D.C. Beltway, and so everybody was kind of high-end in the way they dressed and acted and behaved. Guys had suits and ties every week. Did, did not matter the weather. Ladies in long dresses. Weekdays were business casual, and that was just among the teenagers. <laughs> it was already a very hot Virginia summer day. It would get so hot there in northern Virginia, if you've lived there, you know what I mean. You spent more time indoors in the springtime or in the summer than outdoors because it was just so hot and humid. And I had on my tan dockers, brown belt, brown belt tucked in, long sleeve, plaid, button-down shirt, ready to go into the office as the youth pastor. Jake would be kicked right out. And I'm all set to go. My hair, I had hair. It was combed nicely. I was good to go, had my Doc Martens on, 
And, and my wife said to me, Rick, I, I need you to go downstairs. Now, we had a, a three-story townhouse. The middle story was the main story. So literally, the garage was below, and then you go up steps to the main floor where the kitchen and living room was, and then you go up further steps to the third floor, and you'd have six or so of these lined up together, townhouses in Virginia, very, very typical. And so in this townhouse, we were on the second story. Cheryl asked me as I went down to the car to stop off and go get the hose from our little backyard and feed it up to the deck so she could fill up the kiddie pool up there for Corey, and, and I think Hannah was too little. So for Corey to play in that afternoon, he was about two years old. So dutifully, I went down, grabbed the hose in the backyard, and began to feed it up through the slats when suddenly a deluge of water, I kid you not, like Noah's flood, came crashing down upon me, soaking me dockers to docks. I was wet all the way through. I'm like, yeah! And I hear up on the deck above me, oops. <laughs> Cheryl had forgotten I was down there, and she dumped the entire prior day's kiddie pool of day-old dirty water over the end right on top of me. Soaked me totally through. She was very apologetic, played it off as if it was an accident to this day. I think she saw her chance, and she took it. I was completely soaked. Jesus made quite a splash at a different pool, at the pools of Bethesda in Jerusalem. And at this pool, some things to understand, there was, I believe, an undercurrent of religious superstition going on there. I'll explain. Under those five porticos, around those two pools, not to mention tides of tradition flowing through Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders in all their propriety and decorum are about to be left dripping wet and angry. I know how that feels. But again, it all begins with a pool. A pool. Chapter 5, verse 1 again. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and there is in Jerusalem. Usually when there's a feast, he tells us what feast it is. This is the only time in the gospel that he mentions a feast but doesn't tell us which one it is. Seven times he will list feasts by name, but here's a feast with, with no name. Why is that? Now, some will say, well, it, it's got to be Sukkot or, or Passover. And that's become, because there are some manuscripts, some translations that say the feast. Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast. And when there's a the, it's a significant feast, which would be Sukkot or Passover, likely, one of the two. Now, if it was Passover then that would be four Passovers in the Gospel of John, which would make Jesus' ministry at least three and a half years long. But we don't know. I, I think the best evidence just in the timing of John is probably Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles. But, but John doesn't tell us because it doesn't matter to the story. He uses the feast really as a marker for Jesus being in Jerusalem. That's why he's gone up to Jerusalem, and really that's all we know. We can't say which feast. However, we do know which pool. We know which pool. The pool of Bethesda. Bethesda is what most of your translations will read, and Bethesda is Hebrew. Bet meaning, anyone guess? House, very good. Bethlehem, house of bread. Bethesda, house of, and then Esda. It's the house of the outpouring. We'll just go with that for right now. Bethesda, house of the outpouring. 
It's located in the northeast corner of the old city, just off of the Temple Mount. Some of you have stood there in that place, right in front of the Church of St. Anne's. So if you've been on one of our Israel tours, we always go into St. Anne's and sing because the acoustics are so amazing, and we come out, and we're right there at the pools of Bethesda. And so they're located there right near Nehemiah's sheep gate. In fact, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1 says that Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate, and they consecrated it and hung its doors. So that locates where the sheep gate is. But right there, archaeologists have excavated many years ago two Olympic-sized pools, huge pools, north to south, 75 feet wide by 300 feet long each. Big, deep, very deep pools. And they're surrounded by four covered porticos or colonnades with a fifth portico standing between the two pools that would provide shade over these pools. You may be reading this and saying, well, it says the, a pool. In Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool, a pool, and it seems singular. The Copper Scrolls agree with the archaeology that there are two pools. The, the Copper Scrolls, you know the scrolls supporting, verifying the scriptures in, in stunning ways, and then in 1948, uh, Israel becomes a nation. You think that's by accident? In 1952, as the digging continued on, they ran across copper scrolls. Literally, all the other scrolls were, were either parchment or they were papyrus, but these were rolled copper scrolls. Very, very thin, hammered thin copper. And as they began to study them, they began to discover that they read like treasure maps. And there are many who to this day believe that the copper scrolls are treasure maps to the temple treasures that are buried all throughout the Judean desert. They've never found them, but they have the copper scrolls. Well, the copper scrolls refer to this pool right here, but call this pool Bet Ezda Tayin. Bet Ezda Tain, house of the twin outpourings, or house of the two outpourings, referring then to both pools. Again, why does John say there's a pool? Doesn't it imply just one? And that's very simply answered. He's speaking generally. He's speaking of the region where, where the, the pool was. It's like when I was a kid, we had the Mission Viejo Swim and Racket Club. This is before every house in California had their own backyard swimming pool, which they do now. But in that time... None of us had backyard pools. We had a swimming racket club right down the hill from my house. My brother and I would walk down to go to the pool. It had a large Olympic-sized pool, and then it had a large kiddie pool, not the kind you pour on people's heads. It was a concrete kiddie pool. It had two pools, but we always said we're going to the pool. So speaking generically, and that's, that's what John's doing here, he's referring to the pool, the pool area, the area of the five porticos and the pool. But listen, bet Ezda, if you break it down again in the Hebrew, bet for house, the second word that, that is translated, transliterated in Greek, Ezda, comes from the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed, which is the Hebrew for grace. Grace house of grace, the house of the outpouring of grace, we could put it that way, Bethesda, the house of grace. Put all of that information together. Five porticos, five porticos. Five is the number of grace in the Bible. And here at the number of grace, at the house of grace, we have 
the tayin, the twin outpourings of grace, the house of the twin outpourings of grace. I, I saw that and I thought perhaps perceptive of the coming of Christ and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit, which I see as two twin outpourings of the grace of God, Jesus first, and then sending his spirit. But whatever the case, these twin pools of the house of grace had been there over Sub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool, on the highway to the fuller's field. And the fuller's field is what you would think, fuller's washer's field. The, 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 basically, the Jerusalem laundromat was up there. And this upper pool was used for the washing and the cleaning specifically of sheep that were going into the temple. The upper pool. Why is it called the upper pool? Well, because there's a lower pool, and the lower pool just off the city of David is the pool that Hezekiah built, a reservoir there when he built his tunnel and got the waters of the Gihon Spring to flow into his pool. So you've got two, the upper and the lower pool. Well, this upper pool is right there by the Temple Mount in that location. It's more evidence that the Temple Mount is in the right place, by the way, the pools of Bethesda. And I, I will address this again. Oftentimes people get excited. We get on YouTube. The information on YouTube, I, this is going to shock you, is not always accurate. <laughs> it's kind of like Wikipedia. Get a different source. But people will come and they say, oh, I, I saw on YouTube that, that, that the city of David, that they think that's where the temple is and the temple mount's completely wrong. Well, then the upper pool wouldn't be where it is. We would not have discovered the pools of Bethesda, which are right there by the Temple Mount. All of these things archaeologically, trust me, it just bears out that the Temple Mount today is the same Temple Mount back in the first century. Anyway, back to this, that upper pool was on the way to the Fuller's Field. They did the washing, they did the cleaning, and then the sheep ultimately were washed going into the temple at that time. Verse 3, in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Years ago, when I first started into ministry and I found out that ministry included making hospital calls, I, I, I was out. That was not for me. I have since matured over the years, but I will tell you, when I was younger, I used to go to visit people in the hospitals and that phrase, weak in the knees, my knees got weak every time. Just walking down the halls, it was like, there's sick people here. There's, there's disease here, you know? Can you imagine this pool? A multitude of disease, sick, moaning people lying there. Ugh, this would not be a pretty scene. Right there off the Temple Mount. Sick doesn't just mean ill. Sick, in fact, this Greek word translated sick can also translate weak. Impotent, powerless, unable to do for yourself. And so right at the beginning here at this pool, with all of these, this multitude of, of, of sick and weak people, what we come across is a story of face-to-face -face with mercy. It's another Bible story in which we learn that God helps those who cannot help themselves. And you know what? Ben Franklin, for all his fun and great work, got that completely wrong. That was a Ben Franklin attitude. He wrote it back in 1757 in Poor Richard's Almanac, 
Ben Franklin wrote, God helps those who help themselves. And people liked it so much, they canonized it and they made it scripture. It is not scripture. In fact, it is completely unbiblical. It's not God helps those who help themselves, so pull yourself up by your bootstraps and give yourself a little push toward heaven. It's God helps the helpless. God seeks out the helpless. God's love is toward those who cannot help themselves. For you have been a defense for the helpless, Isaiah 25, verse 4, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. Or Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you feel lame, <laughs> if you feel weak or sick or, or powerless to change your situation in your life, Jesus is here to help you because God helps the helpless. And we see this so vividly in the story before us that Jesus even makes his way up to the upper pool, to this position of this multitude of helpless, sick, ill, diseased people is a stunning thought. Verse three, they were all waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in and was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. This statement in your Bible is probably in parentheses, right? Or it may even be tucked off in a margin somewhere with a little note. To this. Some manuscripts have this, some manuscripts do not. The earliest manuscripts, quote unquote, don't have that little verse and a half. That doesn't mean they're not authentic. It just means the earliest manuscripts that we have on record don't have that, but many others that are, that are high quality, many others that are compelling do have that verse. It kind of leaves us with the question, what do we do with this? Why is it in parentheses? Well, partially because it's so strange. I mean, this is weird. This is uncharacteristic in the Bible. And... If it wasn't here, what's interesting is in verse 7, all the manuscripts we have have the lame man referring to the waters being stirred. So what we think is going on here, and, and, and I'm going to give you two perspectives on this. One, it just is what it is. It's a supernatural stirring by an angel of the Lord that heals the first person in the water. The reason why I could believe that is because I've seen all the other supernatural things that God does throughout the scriptures, and he can do anything he wants, and he can do it however he wants. So I'm good with that. You know, if we find out later after this teaching, oh, it really did happen, great, praise the Lord. I don't think it did. And there's a reason I don't think it did. Let's put it through the filter. The question is, did this happen? And the first answer is the people absolutely believed it did. It's why they were lying around the pool. So there was an urban legend, at least, that said, when those waters stirred, that's an angel doing it, get in and you'll be healed. This urban legend had gone on for a long time. But if we put it through the filter, then what we understand is, from archaeology, these pools are fed by a system of stone pipes. That's so there was, back in the day, Solomon's pools and they had natural springs that fed and then rushed through the pipes and would feed this pool, but those natural springs from time to time would have this intermittent rush of water coming through. Currents and bubbles would flow in, and it would stir up the waters in the pool. 
So there is a natural explanation for what the people saw with their eyes as they lay around the pool waiting to get well, that perhaps that's just what was going on. And, and what John's doing here is he's acknowledging that urban legend. This is what the people were doing there. This is what they, they believed at the time. Think this through with me, though. If it's true that an angel stirred the waters and the first one in got healed and the last one in was a rotten egg, does that sound like grace? It doesn't work like God's ministry tends to work. It's possible, I guess, but it actually sounds more cruel than Christ-like to hold out the carrot of a healing. If you get in first, it's really a survival of the fittest, the fittest, sickest. It's the strongest that can get in. You're the one who's going to be made okay. It's, it's like religion. In fact, it's very religious as a perspective. Religious always plays to the first and the best. Religion is always about survival of the self-righteous. Jesus is not about that. Jesus in the story doesn't even acknowledge the stirring of the waters. He acknowledges the man. He acknowledges the situation, but he says nothing about the water itself. I just don't think it sounds like Jesus. It doesn't sound like a God of grace who makes the helpless righteous. He doesn't play games with those who are helpless and sick and indigent and can't get themselves in the pool. Oh, sorry, sorry, back in a year. So it doesn't sound like God to me. Again, I'm not going to argue the point. If it's the Lord, it's the Lord. He can, he, can he do this? Yes, he could do this. Does it sound like the heart of Jesus to do this kind of thing? No, it does not. And if God is behind this and there is an angel stirring up or was an angel stirring up the waters at the time, well, then there would be a grace explanation for it, and I just haven't found that yet. But here's the thing. I'm not really interested in the origin of the bubbles, angelic or piped in. I want to see what Jesus is about to do. And I think going through John, we talked about this Wednesday night, I want to see what Jesus does. My favorite thing about going through John chapter 4 with y'all on Wednesday night was just seeing Jesus. I just had that sense of, of watching as he just watched Jesus, and I want to do that. So watch him. Imagine the scene. Jesus comes up to Bethesda, Bethesda Tyene, the two pools, the five porticos, surrounded by, as John said, a multitude of sick and withered people all lying around. This pool, once used for a laundry, is now used for stinking sheep to clean them up before they're taken in to temple sacrifice. It's going to be wet. It's going to be humid. It's going to be smelly. It'll be hot, and it's filled with a multitude of moaning indigents. It's Rick as a youth pastor in the hospital again. <laughs> room to room. And there Jesus comes to the pool. By the way, there's one other thing at the pool to note. It's every man for himself. If the first person in is the first person healed, you're not helping somebody else. You help yourself. But this man, he couldn't. I look at the scene and I think so much for the house of mercy or the outpouring of grace until this day when the Lamb of God came through the sheep gate and arrived at the house of grace. Verse five, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Sound familiar? 
Ironically, the same length of time the Israelites had to fully rely on the grace of God as they were in the wilderness. God watered them. He fed them 24-7 at that time in the wilderness. Keep that in mind. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Jesus knew. Just stop right there. Jesus knew. He knew the length of his paralysis. He knew how the paralysis had come. Jesus always knows, just like he knew Nathaniel before they met. John chapter 1, verses 47 and 48. Just like he knew that Nicodemus needed to relearn some of his religion. Just like he knew the Samaritan's, Samaritan woman's story of a broken heart. Just like he knew the Samaritans in the village. Just like he knew the needs of the nobleman and his son. Just like he knows you. Jesus knew. Jesus knew. And he says, do you wish to get well? You know how many sermons have been preached on that verse? Do you wish to get well? And I've heard it preached in all different ways. One kind of like this. Do you wish to get well? How, you've been lying there 38. Do you wish to get well? Because if you wish to get well, you'd be rolling into the water eventually, wouldn't you, dude? And that's the sermon that I've heard, and it focuses on the man more than it does on the Savior. Jesus says again, do you wish to get well? Don't read into it more than what's here. It's the same offer that Jesus makes to everyone. It's the same offer he makes again and again and again. Do you want what I have for you? He pinpoints this man out of the whole multitude, mind you, to say, do you wish to get well? Back in John chapter 3, verse 7, he said to Nicodemus, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Or to the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He's making an offer. Do you wish to get well? Imagine Jesus knowing the heart of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus, kneeling down next to this lame man, this hapless, hopeless, helpless man, and just saying, hey, hey, do you wish to get well? I don't believe this is cognitive intimidation. I think it's compassionate invitation. Well, why does he ask it? Because healing must be received. It's got to be received. Because Jesus, in his tenderness, never forces himself on anyone. Do you, do you wish to get well? Hey, if, if you desire wellness, if you desire wholeness, if you want salvation, I got you. But do you want it? It's always the question that he asks. Do you want to be saved? Verse 7, the sick man answered him, and he said, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet 
and walk. The word get up, one word in the Greek, it's ager. And I can hear Jesus saying it with strong, firm, convicted voice, get up, ager, get up. It's the exact same word, by the way, same word, same phrase, get up, pick up your pallet and walk, that Jesus will use to the paralytic who's lowered through the roof in Capernaum. Matthew 9, Mark 2, Luke chapter 5. Two different stories, two different lame men, same exact verbiage. Get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Get up, says Jesus. And it's a powerful voice, I guarantee you, because it is the voice of Christ. The voice of Jesus saying, get up, eat of the Son of God, and those who will hear will live. Look down at verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. How will they come forth? Jesus is just going to say, get up. Amen. Get up. I try that with Chris. Man, that kid can sleep. <laughs> I need to get Jesus in there because there are some mornings I don't think it's going to happen. Get up, he says. The voice of Jesus. I, I want to point out something. and We'll go back at this on Wednesday night. But look at verse 25 again. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And he is talking about a very specific group of people that is those of the resurrection and the rapture. They will hear. Those who have died prior to the calling out of Jesus, that's who he's talking about because he says they're gonna hear the voice of the Son of God and they will live. We will hear him say, come up here, perhaps get up, and off we go. The dead in Christ and the alive in Christ go up. But note this, verse 28 is not about the rapture. This is now judgment. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. That is deeds-based judgment. That's the great throne judgment at the end of the kingdom, Revelation chapter 20. And it doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus or not, when you go into the grave, you will hear him say, get up, and you will get up. If you believe in Jesus as you go into the grave, when he says, get up, you're going home. If you reject Jesus and go into the grave, when he says, get up, you will be getting up for judgment day. Well, as with the other paralytic, Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. I like what Barrett says about this. Just as the 38 years proved the gravity of the disease, so the carrying of his bed and the walking proved the completeness of the cure. So it's not that he gets up and, and, and he's kind of shaky moving off away from the pool. He gets up, grabs his mat, rolls up his bedroll, throws it over his shoulder, and he's off. Off he goes. He is completely healed. Verse 9, immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was Shabbat on that day. Oops. You can't have people hauling their sleeping bags around on Shabbat. That is just not okay. You especially can't have some guy going around healing people. What's the matter with you, Jesus? This is the religious mentality that considers law more important than compassion and grace. And it wasn't even law. Let me get there. Verse 10. 
So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Can someone give me chapter and verse on that one? Because you're not going to find it in Torah. It's not anywhere in the Bible that you cannot carry your pallet and walk on Shabbat, on the Sabbath day. You know what the Bible tells us? Very specifically, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's it. That wasn't good enough for the rabbis. What does that mean? How do we fill that out? How do we march to these orders? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What if you are in Jerusalem and you're at an elevator? Be careful on, on Shabbat. Don't, don't get on the Shabbat elevator or you're going to hit every floor going all the way down with no buttons. It was all made up. It was all additional law to help them keep the Sabbath. If I told you today, here's the, here's the task, here's your homework for today. After church, after lunch, about 3 o'clock this afternoon, I'd really like you to take a nap. First of all, how many of you would go home and, and start going, well, wait a minute. Did he say use a pillow? Should I ever use a pillow? He didn't say anything about a blanket, but it's kind of cold in the house right now. I'm not sure if I pillow and blanket. Do I get under the covers? Well, no, that's like going to sleep at night. I probably shouldn't do that. Maybe a nap on the couch, that would be okay. Oh, no, that would mess up the pillows on the couch. Perhaps I should. And, and next thing you know, you're so wide awake stressing about how to take a nap, you miss the nap. And that's what's going on. All these laws and rules, I've told you 39 categories of work. 39 categories were developed over time by the old rabbis. Thousands of pages of legal rulings and regulations. It's just like the U.S. Congress adding pork to a bill. And that's not even kosher. <laughs> you know, there's a, a Sabbath law that says you cannot look in a mirror on Shabbat. Why? You might see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. <laughs> It's in there. When you start down the road of legalism, this is where you go. You miss the joy. You miss the healing. You miss the rest. You miss everything that God has for you. Do you wish to get well? Is the question of the Lord across the ages. Is it okay to carry a mat on supernaturally healed legs? I would think that would be fine. Verse 11. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. Now, I don't think the guy was throwing Jesus under the bus. I think he was just saying, well, he told me to walk. And I didn't do it for 38 years, so I figured it'd probably be okay. Well, they asked him, verse 12, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. I love it. Jesus pops in. You wish to get healed, boom, and he's out. He's just gone. Where, who, I don't even know who he was. I just heard him say, get up, and I did, and I'm walking. He doesn't know. Now, here's something interesting to me. If you read this whole section, the phrase of Jesus, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk, is stated by Jesus, and it's repeated by this man, and then it's even repeated by the Jews. It is repeated three times. 14, afterward, Jesus found him 
Note that Jesus found him. So Jesus knew him. Jesus went to him. Now Jesus found him. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Dude goes to church. What's the first thing you do when you have been healed of a disease or healed of an issue or saved from a major problem in your life and you know God's had a hand in it that he's come in and and saved you, rescued you, delivered you? What's the first thing you do? This guy picked up his pallet and went to church. Went into temple. Goes to temple because what do you do when you know you're healed? You thank God. And this is right where he headed and this is where Jesus finds him still hauling his pallet And there at church, the man gets convicted. Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Scholars are divided on this one, on whether or not the man's paralysis was because of a particular sin, which is why Jesus now says, Don't sin anymore, or something worse is going to happen to you. Connecting the healing with the sin, the the paralysis perhaps with something that he had done, what did he do? What was the sin? Maybe it was an addiction that ended up paralyzing him. Maybe he was having an affair, and he jumped from a second-story window, and bam, spinal cord injury. Maybe he got drunk and fell off his donkey. You know what that would be? Donkey while intoxicated, DWI. (laughs) The point is we don't know. What did he do? What was the sin? We don't know. What's the sin behind his paralysis? I don't know. Why does it matter? There's something more significant here. Sin makes everybody lame. Sin paralyzes every one of us. It leaves us all helpless. That's what sin does. Now, I tend to think, and I kind of changed opinion on this over the years, but I tend to think, yes, his paralysis was directly connected to some sin behavior that led to him being paralyzed. I think that's probably what's going on here. But again, the third sign isn't for us to consider the lameness of this man or his sin life. It's for us to consider the mercy of Christ. But here's the deal. Consider this. All around is a multitude of those who are sick, blind, lame, and withered. And Jesus goes to this man. He doesn't heal them all. You know what? Jesus came to do much more than make a sick person something much bigger than all of that. And so there are times throughout his ministry where Jesus is going to walk right by someone in this condition, people around this pool, and he won't heal them. There will be other times where he's sitting there for three days, healing, 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 because his compassion just takes over. But in this particular situation, Jesus goes to this man, listen, if sin was the root issue of this disability, it makes the story all the more poignant it would mean that Jesus chose this singular invalid precisely because his paralysis was a direct result of sin. But that's why he chose to heal this man, because sin was at the root. People come to church, or they avoid church altogether for this same reason. They'll come and they'll sit back and say, Jesus wouldn't want me. I'm too messed up. I'm too sinful. 
I, I, there's too much in my life I got to clean up. So he wouldn't want me like this. And let me tell you, that's exactly why he died for the too messed up, for the too sinful, the sinfully sick. He goes and finds the ones who are not diseased physically, they're diseased spiritually. He's looking for them. He's come to heal them while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Or Paul says, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us. It's the demonstration of his love in that while we were yet sinners, in our sin, messed up, totally out of it, that Jesus says, do you wish to get well? The, the, the question implies a positive response on the part of Jesus. Do you wish to get well? Well, yeah. Then you're healed. Pick up your pallet and walk. Do you wish to get well? Sinner. Well, I, I don't know. My life's kind of messed up. I, do, do you wish to get well? Jesus will make you well. Jesus will heal you of all sin. Don't ever forget that outpouring of grace, especially if you're the one lying there wallowing in self-pity. Well, he wouldn't want me. Do you wish to get well? Because you're the exact person that he's looking to save. Ah, my life is so sinful. Yes, that's why he came. It's not yes, the sin is good. It's yes, he's good. And his grace is for you. What do we see in this story? We see a savior who first says, you're healed, and then comes back a little bit later and tells him, don't sin anymore. It's always both of those with Jesus. You're healed. Don't sin anymore. Listen to me. The opposite of healing is not disease. Romans 5.11, Paul says, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The opposite of healing is sin. Healing is to deal with sin. It's not just a disease factor. In all the healings of Jesus, sin was the greatest concern of the Son of Man. Romans chapter 7, verse 12, Paul says, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which was good, the law, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful, for we know the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. The opposite of healing is sin. And healing is God's answer to sin, which is why in the book of James chapter 5, verse 14, he writes, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Because true healing heals not just the flesh but the spirit. True healing is Jesus saving us eternally. Verse 14, continuing. Jesus says again, behold, you become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. What could be worse? The man had been 38 years 
an invalid, which would tell you if this was sin-related, the sin was a long time ago. 38 years. What could be worse than that? How about an eternity in hell? Matthew 18, verse 8, Jesus said, if your right hand or, or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. And with the other lame man in Capernaum, Jesus did the same thing. He looked at him, this lame man on this pallet, lowered down through the ceiling, and he looks at him, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. First thing out of his mouth. We didn't lower him down to get his sins forgiven. We lowered him down because he can't walk. Son, your sins are forgiven. Then he says, Mark 2, verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or get up. Same word, get up. Pick up your pallet and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Agar, get up. Pick up your pallet and go home. He offers the forgiveness. It's beautiful. He does this with the adulterous woman. It's forgiveness first, salvation first, sanctification second. We talked about this on Wednesday night. It's grace first, and then it's conviction. And with the adulterous woman in John chapter 8, the story coming up in a week or two or 10, I don't know, he says to her, John 8, 11, I do not condemn you either. From now on, sin no more. Salvation first. Sanctification follows immediately. With tenderness in the truth. We talked about this for a bit on Wednesday night. Love expressed in the truth. Speak the truth in love, brothers and sisters. Which means we acknowledge sinful lifestyle in our families, among our friends. We acknowledge it for what it is. We don't ignore it, look the other way, sweep it under the carpet. We say, yeah, that, someone says, so you think how I'm living is sinful? My answer would, would be, yeah, stinking smelly sinner. No, no, that's not what you'd say. So you think I'm sinful because I'm living with her? The Bible says you're living outside of God's grace. So yeah. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that I don't love you. It doesn't mean that I'm better than you because I happen to be married and you're living with that person. That, that, that's not the comparison I'm making here. It, it means that you're living outside of the grace and the love and the mercy of God, and he wants that for you. Speak the truth in love. Deal with it as it is. I know we live in cancel culture. I know you are not supposed to say anything that might offend someone in the least. Then you're never again going to be able to share the gospel. This just hit me, but cancel culture at its, its end game is to stop the gospel because the cross is an offense and people are offended to find out that they are living in sin. That offense is gonna come, must come, but with that offense can come salvation if we speak the truth in love. That's tenderly, compassionately, not trying to prove ourselves better or right or more holy than others. And if you've had the same kind of sin behavior in your past, you can use that. I was right there. I was living that way just like you are right now. I didn't know any different than you. Let me tell you what's different for me. Speak the truth in love. Jesus always does this. Behold, you've become well. 
Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Well, verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Again, I don't think he's throwing Jesus under the bus. It's just as he goes out, they go, hey, have you haven't found him yet? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's Jesus. He's right back over there. I like the blind man in John chapter 9, similar story. They find him, and, and he says, oh, yeah, it's Jesus. They ask him, who, who gave you sight? And he goes, why, do you want to be made well too? Hey, man, when you're healed, you want everybody to be healed. So he just tells him, yeah, it was Jesus. For this reason, verse 16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Here's the shift right here. You could even underline this in your Bible that verse 16 violated law. He violated their standard of righteousness. He was dressing differently than what they required, spiritually speaking. Isn't it interesting, immediately it says they were persecuting him, going after him, angry. I mean, there's something I don't understand. People who reject Jesus get so angry and oppositional to his grace. What he offers is such a good thing. And you know you've dealt with this. People who don't want that Jesus, the more you bring up the gracious, merciful, new mercies every day God, the more they go, don't talk to me about it. You know, and they, I don't want to hear that. He even says they're persecuting him, and again, they will ride up to the cross. And he says, my father's working until now. This is Jesus' answer to their Sabbath argument. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Jesus' response to the Sabbath shakedown is very simple. He says there's something higher than human rest. In fact, something upon which our rest absolutely 100% depends. Do you know what that is? It's his work. My Sabbath depends on his work. I don't get Sabbath if God stops working. He has to work for me to take a Sabbath. Now, you might hear that and say, wait a minute. So does God break his own Shabbat? Does God break Sabbath? Let me read this to you. Psalm 121. I will lift my eyes to the mountains, from where shall my help come, come from? And, and I, I've told you before, that is a picture of being surrounded. The mountains are not the place of the help. Okay, so Mother Superior in Sound of Music was completely wrong. You don't look to the mountains for help. You look to the mountains and go, oh, there's a storm up there. I'm not going there. And in the shadow of the threat, I will lift my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip, and he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. How could God rest and do that? How could God take the day off? 
if God took one day off this world and on mine, if God took a day off, took his own day of rest, you know what, according to rabbinical code, if God's providential care for Israel is constant, 24-7, day and night, then yes, he would be violating rabbinical code. So you throw that up in the face of the rabbis and say, guys, what do you do with that? And they scratch the yarmulkes and they came up with something. They say, since God carried no load outside the limits of his own dwelling, that is heaven and earth, and lifted up nothing to a height which exceeded his own stature, therefore, all he did fell within that interpretation of what is admissible on the Sabbath. Now that is lame. The explaining away and trying to justify when the truth is, as Jesus says, my father is working until now and I myself am working. There is a work ongoing. Answer me this question. When it says that God rested on the seventh day after the six days of creation, God rested. When did that day of rest for God end? Bible never says it did. What do you mean? According to the Hebrew pastor, it never ended. God finished creating, and Shabbat began for the Lord. Listen, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He's speaking of Israel. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So there remains right now a Sabbath rest in the Lord to this day. Well, except when Jesus said, my father is working. No, right then. God was working. Jesus was at work and yet in Sabbath. And yet at rest. Call it a working holiday if you want to, but for God, it's never been about sanctimonious religion. It's God wanting the helpless to stop being lame and to enter into his rest. There is a restfulness with God. I, I love days off like that. When I'm off, my ideal day off is not to sit in a chair and stare out a window. Can you imagine? Who could do that for the whole day? I would get so, I'd be bored out of my mind. Give me a book or something. Give me something to do. I want my idea of a day off, my rest, my Shabbat is being with friends. It's hanging out with my kids. It's playing, sockling us into his rest, which is a, a spiritual rest. It's a healed rest. It's a rest that strengthens our, our spiritual legs and causes us to follow after him. Verse 18 for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking Shabbat, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The rest of chapter 5, we get into red-letter testimony. Jesus starts to give all kinds of witnesses as to why this is all legitimate. We'll cover that on Wednesday night. But I want to leave you with this. If the placement of this sign here in the gospel of john tells us anything it's this think of it in terms of the other signs just as water from the purification jars in cana could not produce the new wine of the kingdom 
And just as water from Jacob's well at Sukkar could not satisfy the broken heart of the woman and the broken system of the Samaritans, so the phony promise of superficial, uh, superstitious religion that was stirring at the pools had no power to truly transform the helpless and get them up on their feet. Only God could do that. Only God could do this. Only Jesus. And with the placement of this, we see Jesus moving to do what could not be done without him. What could not happen without the hand of God. He transforms water to wine. He transforms an entire town of, of Samaritans who were out of touch with the truth to salvation. He transforms a lame man to strong legs and walking again. Only Jesus can do this can give legs to the paralyzed life. He comes to the most helpless people, helpless in sin, helpless in situation, and he comes asking the question of grace. It's your question and mine this morning. Do you wish to get well? Do you wish to get well? It's the question he asks, and he alone is the answer. Let's pray. Father, we're going to have to work this one through in our own hearts and in our own minds because I know that there's illness among us. I know, Lord, that there is physical um, pain among us. I know that bodies here among us don't function the way we wish they would function. And we, and we hear you saying, do you wish to get well? And, and we would be first in line. Well, I'm the first one ready to jump into the pool. But Jesus I think maybe my focus would be in the wrong place. Jesus, you're the one who asked, do you wish to get, to get well? And you're the one who said, get up. And you're the one who heals. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would increase our faith and cause us to come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>